Okay, now the Enlightenment, or the age of the Enlightenment, as you know, it was a philosophical movement that swept across Europe in the late 17th, early 18th century. Now, the chief characteristic of this movement, the Enlightenment, chief characteristic was, of course, this sort of desire to move society away from the shackles of uh, religious thought and to move society toward a human reason and human logic as the source of authority and legitimacy. So you see the idea, the idea of the Enlightenment to, to move things away from Bible, move things away from the church and to turn for the answers to the big questions in life, the great questions in life, to turn instead away from the Bible, away from the church and to turn towards human logic and human thinking. Now, she would agree that in some senses the Enlightenment was incredibly successful, wasn't it? This movement it took hold in all manner of disciplines from philosophy to science and so forth. Okay, though, here's the question we need to ask. Has it worked? Has it? Has the Enlightenment worked? Has human understanding Has human wisdom really answered the big questions, the great questions that man is asking? When we try to take Almighty God out of the equation, if we try to take him out of the picture, do we, does man have an answer to why it is that humanity suffers? Does man have an answer to why we're here? Does man even have an answer to what it is that life is all about? Has the Enlightenment worked? Well, this evening in our time together, what we are going to do is consider the limitations and the shortcomings of human logic and human reasoning. The limitations of that. And to do this, what we're going to do is to turn back to that second reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So, I'll ask you to do that just now. If you would have Ecclesiastes 1 from verse 12 open and ready in front of you. Tonight we are going to look very closely at the text. It's a difficult text. You're going to need it there in front of you. So from verse 12 to verse 18, have it there. And first of all, now there's three sections to this. And by this I mean the sermon. First of all, let's consider the ineffectiveness of worldly wisdom. The ineffectiveness of worldly wisdom. I don't often do this in in our sermons. I want to do it tonight. I want to draw your attention to how the portion of Scripture is structured. Because not only is it interesting, it's beautiful. So please have the page there. Do you see it? Have a look. In verse 12, what you've got is a title. So Solomon is kind of telling us, reminding us what's going on here, who he is. He's the king over Israel, and he is looking back over, in some senses, his life. So you've kind of got this title in verse 12. Then, from verse 13, the first of two sections begins. 
Okay, now in this first section, you have got three things. You have got a statement of activity. So Solomon, first of all, he tells us something about what he's been doing. Then the second thing you've got is an assessment of that. So he tells us what he's been doing, and then he kind of tells us what he's discovered about that. And then the third thing, if you look at verse 15, do you see what you've got? You've got a proverb that kind of reinforces the conclusion that he makes. So you're following me so far. You've got this first section with three things, statement of activity, an assessment of that. Then you've got a proverb. Okay. Now, look at verse... Let's go into the second section. Look at verse 16. I'll ask you, guess how this is going to function. Guess how this is going to work. That's right. Verse 16, you've got a statement of activity. Verse 17, there's an assessment of that. And then have a look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. What have you got? You've got a proverb that reinforces, again, the conclusion (laughs) that Solomon makes. Don't you like it? Like, isn't it beautiful? Our God much is a God of order. You've got tonight two sections here that are functioning very similar. They're functioning almost in the same way. So you've got the structure of this section tonight. Okay, tell you what, let's go back though to the first section. What is this statement of activity? Like, what is it that Solomon's been doing? What is this about? Well, in verse 13, if you see it, he says that I saw and I have been exploring by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So do you see what he what he's doing here? Solomon is speaking about here his life of evaluation. So he's saying here that he has throughout his life in a very, very comprehensive way, a detailed way, he's been seeking to wrestle with and to understand the meaning of life, the purposes of life, the peculiarities of life. Now, stay with me. Here's the crucial thing. He has been seeking to do this in purely human terms. You see that? He uses the term wisdom here. Now, this is a wisdom he means without reference to Almighty God. So do you see what we're dealing with this evening? Like Solomon is seeking to understand life, to understand what this is all about. But he's using only secular categories, using only secular terms. So this is what he's been doing. So question we want to know is, well, What's your conclusion about this then? With the end of verse 14. Don't you love this expression that he uses here? He says, it has all been a chasing after the wind. Don't you love the expression? It's been a chasing after the wind. But what does he mean? Well, at home in uh, Woodford, we have a bubble machine. Okay, every family needs to have a bubble machine. Don't, it's not for me, it's for the children. Uh, but it's an ingenious invention. You take it out into the garden, you pour in a couple of tubs of liquid, you press start, and you know what happened, like hundreds of tiny little bubbles fly into the air. <clears throat> and I'm sure you know what it's like. The kids will vainly spend the next couple of hours 
trying to catch the bubbles, you know? They're running around. You know what it's like? They'll just get their hands on the bubble and the bubble will burst. Same idea, isn't it? Isn't it? A chasing after the wind. You see what Solomon's saying? This pursuit of understanding of life using only secular terms, what has it been? It's been a total and utter waste of time. He has just been chasing after the wind. Now, it's fairly depressing. Wouldn't you agree with that? That this thesis that we have here in front of us, that if man pours all of his intellect to trying to understand what this life is like, apart from God, man cannot come up with these answers to these great questions. It is, in some senses tonight, it's a depressing thing for us to consider on a Sunday evening. So because of that, we really need to ask why that's the case. So would you do this? Have a look at verse 13. And here's what I'd ask you. Can you see in verse 13 from where Solomon says this, this life of confusion, where does it come from? This this apparently meaningless life. What is its origin in verse 13? Do you see what it is? Do you see what it is? He says that, he says this heavy burden of a, oh, this difficult, this unfathomable, incomprehensible life, the heavy burden comes from where? From God. You see what he's saying? He's saying surely in Eden, Adam would have understood very clearly the meaning and the purpose of life. Like Adam and Eden, he would have understood and seen it all. But what has happened in the fall? Sin, yes, has come in. But God has cursed the ground. God has cursed mankind. And now do you see it? What has happened? Life has become twisted. Life has become corrupted. But so has our capacity to understand life. Do you see? Sin comes in. God's curse on man comes in. And everything is corrupted. And doesn't that now make sense of the proverb? Look at the proverb. Look what he says. He says, what is twisted cannot be straightened. You see it, the crookedness of this life because of sin, by human reason, the crookedness of it all cannot be straightened out. Look at the next part of it. What is lacking, it cannot be counted. Do you see what he's saying? This fallen life, this life that is utterly scarred by sin. Solomon looks at it and his conclusion, it just does not add up. Friends, what a conclusion this is, isn't it? That is somewhat dark and depressing. No matter the effort and engagement by man, man will never, ever, ever, ever of himself understand the purpose of life. What do we do with this? Is there anything in this for us tonight? I remember... uh, many, many moons ago, being in Glasgow, where I lived at the time, and being in a coffee shop, shows how long ago it was, the coffee shop is no longer there, but I was sitting there with my friend, and we 
been sitting there for hours, uh, setting the world to rights, discussing everything. And the, the thing that sticks in my memory was that my friend was down. Like, he was at that, we were at that age, he was at that age. At university, I suppose, where you're asking bigger questions and you're wrestling with things, and he was down. A few things had happened in his life, and he was at the point where he was saying, well, what is life about? Like, what is this about? Why is it that we are here? What, what is this? Do you know what I said to him? Nothing. Nothing. And I remember so vividly that I think I was just scared of ridicule from him, even though he's such a close friend of mine. And I think I was, you know, there was part of me that was scared of just, even as a Christian, scared of just tackling some of the big questions. You know, I was scared of getting out of my debt. So I said, like, despite the fact that he's asking me, I said, not worth nothing. I'd, I'd urge you tonight never to make that mistake. Like in Ecclesiastes this evening, you are seeing quite clearly man's inability to comprehend life. What does that mean? That means the people in your life, when they assess their existence, and let me tell you, as well you know, people in your life are going to do that. There will be periods and seasons in their life where they will assess, what is this about? What on earth is this? But when they do that, your friends and your family, what's going to happen? They are going to be left without answers. They're going to be left with innumerable questions and confusion. And you and me, we have to be ready for that, don't we? We have to be ready We have to be ready to point these people to the Lord Jesus Christ. To point people to verses in Scripture, to God's Word. We need to point people to the only one who has answers to all of these great questions. So we see the ineffectiveness of worldly wisdom. A second thing that we see clearly in this portion of Scripture is the sorrow of worldly wisdom. So let me say this. If you thought the first point was dark, it's nothing in this. The sorrow of worldly wisdom. Now, the the message uh, of this particular portion of Scripture, surely you would agree with this, that it would be loathsome to unbelieving man. You see what I mean by that? For Scripture to see here that if you combine... All of the intellect on this earth, if you combine it all apart from God, that's still not going to be enough to understand the meaning and the purpose of life. That's not a popular message uh, to be preached, I'm sure you would agree. So perhaps what we need to do just now is to address some objections that unregenerate man might have to what Solomon says here. This is how I want to play it. Let's imagine just now, just for a moment, that in here with us tonight was one of the world's leading thinkers. In here tonight, London City Presbyterian Church, for some reason, in has come one of the world's foremost secular philosophers. He's come in here tonight. 
what would he say about Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18? What do you think would be some of his objections to Solomon's thesis? What do you think? Well, is this not true? Would he maybe not say this to Solomon? Okay, Solomon, you've looked into life and you failed to find meaning, but we today are different. Would he not say that? Would he not say, well, you, Solomon, you're a man from a long time ago. You're a man from the ancient world. And to be honest, Solomon, a bit unsophisticated back then. But we today, we are different. We have advanced. Okay, you might not have worked this out. But modern man, we might be able to work out the meaning and the purpose of life. You see the objection. You see it, do you? How would Solomon answer that? Have a look. Look at verse 16. He says, I, Solomon, have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. Now, do you see what that is? That is not, let me say this, that is not Solomon just, you know, showing off a wee bit and Solomon's boasting. What does he say? Oh, I've grown and increased in wisdom. That's not what it is. What is it? It's a reminder for us, isn't it? It's a reminder of who Solomon was. And you know your Bibles, don't you? You know exactly who Solomon was. Who was Solomon, friends? Who was he? He was the wisest man that has ever lived. Isn't that right? He was the one upon whom God has bestowed unprecedented discernment and wisdom. The one about whom God says, listen to this in First Kings. Listen to this. There has, Solomon, been none like you, and, Solomon, none like you shall ever, ever arise. Do you see the point? Do you see it? No matter how much information and knowledge 21st century man accumulates, no matter how advanced and clever we might like to think that we are, we are nothing compared to this man, Solomon. Nothing compared to him. And what does that then mean? That we are not going to figure it out. The man is not, apart from God, going to figure out the purposes of life. So we see that one objection. Solomon swats it away. But I think there's maybe another objection. Now, it's an an objection that a secular philosopher might have. But I think it's an objection that your friends and your family might have as well. Can you imagine the man in here tonight, the great thinker? Imagine he says this. Okay, Solomon... But what if the meaning of life and the purpose of life isn't actually all that complicated after all? What if the meaning and purpose of life is this, just to love each other? What if the meaning and the purpose of life is just to ensure that we do no harm to anyone or anything? You've heard this. (laughs) And the people in your life say this, do they not? Now, again, my question to you is, how would Solomon... Oh, how is he going to deal with that? Would you look at verse 17 with me? Solomon says, Yes, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, but look at the next bit. Do you see it? Like, I've applied myself to all of madness and folly as well. So do you see what he's saying? Not only in this search for meaning throughout his life has Solomon assessed the great and deep and philosophical things, what else has he done? Like to find meaning, he's also looked into the mundane as well. You see it? 
It's not just the begging deep in there. He's not just sat in this dark room thinking about the philosophical stuff. He's thought and explored the very ordinary matters of life. And what has he found? Look at verse 17. What's his conclusion again? They too are like a chasing after the wind. You see, neither in the deep things, the philosophical things, the complicated things in life or in the mundane can man apart from God find any meaning, can any true purpose to life now, we see that that conclusion in the second section here is the same as to the first. And it is hard. But here's the question I would ask you. If human reasoning and logic, if it cannot give us answers to the questions that man is asking, is there anything that human logic and reasoning can provide us with? Is there? There is, according to Solomon, but it isn't easy to read. Look at the proverb in verse 18. Solomon says this, For with much wisdom comes what? Much sorrow. So the more knowledge, the more human knowledge, the more grief. What does he mean? I, I wonder if you've heard the name uh, Dr. Samuel Brisbane. Dr. Samuel Brisbane, he was a medical expert. Dr. Brisbane was actually one of the world's foremost uh, experts in the Ebola virus. But what happened was that Dr. Brisbane, in his attempts to try and understand the Ebola virus and interact with the Ebola virus, he himself contracted Ebola. And after this long fight, he succumbed to the disease and he died. Now you imagine that. Imagine that happening to an expert in the disease. If I contract Ebola, such is my total ignorance of that virus, I am not going to have a clue what's happening to me. I'm not going to know what the, the virus is doing to my body. I don't know what's going to happen to me. But you see how different it would be to that man? He contracts the disease and he immediately knows exactly what's going to happen. Like he knows the stages of this virus he knows what's happening to his body. He knows what effect this is going to have in his eternal organs. He knows what miseries lie ahead. Here's the thing. That is what Solomon is saying here. He is saying that such is the nature of a purely worldly human wisdom that actually such wisdom often, it's a curse. And I think if you give it some thought tonight, you see that that is true, do you not? Think even back to what it was like in primary school. Do you remember primary school? Some of us have to really think back to try and remember primary school. But go back there. Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember the bliss of it all? Wasn't there? Wasn't there the bliss of ignorance in some ways? We didn't in primary school have any idea what life was like, did we? And yet what's happened 
as knowledge has increased, what's happened? So has our awareness of the unfairness of human life. Knowledge has increased over the years and and so has our awareness of the, the complexities of life, but the inconsistencies of life. Do you see it? Do you see what human wisdom has done? It's actually given us very few answers, but the answers we have received, they have just brought us pain. So again, I ask... Is there anything that we can do with this? Is there an application here for us? Well, surely we see tonight in this, given the sorrow of worldly wisdom, surely we see the need to put our Christian joy out there on display. Isn't that right? What are we learning from Solomon? Outside of the church, outside of Christ Jesus, there is misery and there is despair that the people in your life, they are going to assess their existence and it's going to lead them to grief. It's going to lead them to sorrow. So I ask you this, do you want the people in your life to come to you? Do you? Do you want them to see something of the, the hope you have and come to you for the answers to these questions? Do you want that to happen? Don't you want that to happen? What do we do? We surely must show them the gladness that we have in Christ Jesus. That in everything, at work, at home, in our social life, we show them the joy of Christ, the gladness of the gospel. We put it out there. We radiate this joy that we have in Jesus, this hope that we have. Why? So that those people will come us and they'll ask us the reason for the hope that we have as the people of God. So the sorrow of worldly wisdom. I want to end, third thing, the antithesis to worldly wisdom. The antithesis to worldly wisdom. One of the joys of being a preacher is dealing with those who disagree with what you say. Um, I remember one of the, uh, one instance, uh, not all that long ago, uh, where somebody had taken great offence to something that I'd said from the pulpit. And it took me quite a while to work out exactly what, what had been going on. And then uh, the penny dropped. This person had been listening online, so they're not here. And listening online, and what they had done was enter into the sermon about two-thirds of the way through the sermon. They had listened to a tiny snippet of the sermon... And then they had misconstrued entirely what it was, that what, the point that was being made. I think there's a lesson for us in that, isn't there? There's a danger of only listening to part of what somebody says. There's a danger in only listening to a part of a sermon. And see that principle, it applies here. Because what did we say a couple of weeks ago when we started Ecclesiastes? What is Ecclesiastes? It's a sermon of sorts, isn't it? Like Solomon here preaching, the preacher, looking back in the end of his life. And so you see the danger? If we were to take this snippet of this sermon here in isolation by itself, 
we might get the wrong idea. Why? Because this here, this section of Scripture tonight, it is part of a much larger message, isn't it? And what is that message? What's the message of Ecclesiastes? No. What is the message of God's Word? The message is that, yes, human wisdom will not provide us with answers. But answers can be found. And they can be found in the wisdom of our God. Now, don't you agree that's more like it? We're putting aside the depressing parts of this sermon and we are hearing that, what is this? What is this? That meaning in life can be found? Purpose to life can be revealed? That's more like it. So what is this? What do we know about this godly wisdom? Well, first of all, we know that this godly wisdom, it's found in a different way. And I want you to think about that. That godly wisdom is almost counterintuitive. It's not that we find this by sitting, uh, thinking for hours and meditating on philosophy. It's not found through reading endless books. How is it found? It's found by us humbling ourselves before God and asking for that knowledge from him. Come on, what else do we know about God's wisdom? Don't we know that it is the complete opposite of the wisdom of this age. The complete opposite. Gabriel read 1 Corinthians earlier on. Did you notice what it was that Paul said there? Let me read it to you. He said this, that the message of the cross, that, that is godly wisdom, the message of the cross, what is it? What does Paul say it is? It is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is a stumbling block to some, to Jews. It is foolishness to Greeks. Do you see this? This great revelation from God to mankind of where meaning and purpose is found. What's happening to this great revelation? It's been shunned. It has been entirely overlooked by humanity. Why is this? Because it appears to unregenerate man as being madness, as being foolish. And then this is it. Last thing. We'll end with this. What else do we know about godly wisdom? If you listen to nothing else, listen to this. We know that godly wisdom centers and revolves around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what else did Paul say? He said this, but to those who, whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. But what else did he say? Christ. Christ is the wisdom of Almighty God. He is the wisdom of God. And I just want to ask you tonight whether you know that to be true. Do you? Do you know that it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that you will understand the meaning and the purpose of existence? Do you know that it's only through this plan of salvation and redemption in God's word that you're going to understand why we suffer in this life? That is only through God's grace that you're going to understand why there's goodness 
and love in this world. And it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that you're going to understand and see why it is that we in here have hope and we have peace and we have joy. Do you see that, friend? To be true. Do you see that it is Christ who holds the key to all of this? Friends, the message tonight is not desperate. It is not hopeless. It is not depressing. There is meaning in life. But the only way that we will access that is through bowing before God and asking him to forgive us for our sin. Have you done that? If you have, then you know understanding, don't you? In fact, if you have done that, what is yours? The enlightenment of Christ. Let's pray.